Welcome to Ignite Your Business Radio Show. Light the match, throw some gasoline on, and buckle up because we're about to take your business to the next level. I'm your host, Josh Wilhelm. What comes to your mind when you think of Valentine's Day? Most people think of roses and maybe even a few chocolates. It's a very sweet holiday, as they would say, in more ways than one, of course. But what about other holidays? Is there a huge surge in chocolate sales for the 4th of July? I can't imagine that the heat of summer, fireworks, and chocolate go very well together. One of the ways Americans show their love and affection for one another each year is by spending over $500 million, that's with an M, million dollars in confectionery products around the Valentine season. The Easter Bunny, on the other hand, effortlessly hops into double the digits that amount of candy sales every year. While businesses in this industry enjoy the financial benefits, there are also some health advantages to eating chocolate. Yes, all of you chocolate lovers out there, you now have an excuse and reason to be eating more chocolate, like keeping your heart healthy. There are even some studies that tie eating chocolate to improving your math skills. So that means one plus one equals chocolate heaven. EOD Confections did the math. Take something you personally love to make, plus something that brings a smile to their friends' and family's faces equals a winning business model. Of course, the multi-million dollar industry certainly doesn't hurt, but EOD Confections has flavors ranging from American pick-me-up to strawberry white, and they have every type of fudge that you could possibly crave. They're not ones to quote, bite into the belief that you need a holiday to buy chocolate for someone that you care about, or even for your own self-indulgence. EOD has gone so far as to start a subscription service. Forget about the wine club or wine of the month. Enjoy savory and sweet chocolatey treats that show up at your front door every month. Forrest Gump said it perfectly when he said, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Today's guest personifies this saying in more ways than one. He started as an EOD technician, which stands for Explosive Ordnance Disposal Technician. Boy, that's a mouthful. And now is the president and co-founder of EOD Confections. Now, the meaning is slightly different for the EOD Confections this time around, but it stands for Extraordinary Delights. This company truly has a unique founding story and we want to get right into it. Without further ado, Ignite Your Business Radio Show is proud to introduce Aaron Hill. Aaron, it is a great pleasure to have you on the show with us today. Welcome. Thanks for having me on, Josh. Absolutely. So before we begin, i like to say right off the bat, I want to thank you for your service and your sacrifice for our country. Uh, uh, those that are not able to see you, they're just listening to the podcast. You have physical injuries, which we'll get into a little bit later from your days in the military. Um, and so it's it's certainly evident from a physical standpoint that you have gone through some stuff. Uh, but I want to say thank you first and foremost for your service and your sacrifice and your dedication to our country. You're welcome. It was uh, my honor to have the opportunity to serve. And I, I cannot say thank you enough for that. So, all right, we, let's get right into it. So go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do. Well, Josh, I, uh, I started off my entire life knowing pretty much 
pretty much up until about a month before joining the military that I would never be in the service. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I grew up one of those Midwestern lives and, uh, you know, I'm a patriot, I love my, my nation and, and I love our service members, but I just I didn't feel like I was on that track. In fact, I didn't have much of a track at all. Not a whole lot of ambition, no goals. Uh, I had enough talent to not really have to work for anything to get by. But then that made me a BC student in high school. And then in college, that made me a CD enough student and all of the hard <laughs> workers around me quickly surpassed me so uh, i quickly found out that i just wasn't ready uh, i hadn't i didn't have discipline or um determination i didn't have <coughs> that, an aspiration i didn't even know where i was going or what i was going to do i didn't have a purpose uh, and I, I think I joined, um, I, I, I declared my major as international business because I love to travel and business sounded just so general that <laughs> you could do whatever. Uh, I didn't, I didn't have to decide. Did no one tell you about the underwater basket weaving as a, as a major that you could go for? Underwater wood welding. Or, or basket <laughs> weaving even too. Yeah. I, either one. <laughs> Well, yeah. Uh, so I'd uh, I'd wasted a whole bunch of tuition uh, money figuring this out that uh, I just wasn't on the right track. I wasn't ready in uh, the college. I was going to Bowling Green State University. It was it was it was like a mutual thing. They didn't want me back either. So uh, I got a couple jobs. I started working. Um, I was working at a surf shop during the day, and I was at a restaurant at night. And uh, it, it just dawned on me that I needed I needed uh, these these standards. I needed goals. I needed to find some discipline. And the only way to do that and get back to college and, and get my education was through the military and the GI Bill. So I I walked into the Navy recruiter. I decided then and there that I was going to be. A chef, so I was going to get the GI Bill. I was going to get do my four years, get out, and go to culinary school. And in the meantime, I would be a cook in the Navy. So I took that uh, uh, aptitude test they give you uh, when joining, and I scored high enough that they said, "You sure you want to be a cook in the Navy?" <laughs> I said, "Yes, yes. Uh, I know. I had I know preconceptions or misconceptions about." Um, the the kind of life I was getting myself into and I was looking forward to it and the truth was I love being a sailor and uh, when my four years wa was up I opted for more uh, and I, I I spent eight years in the Navy and I worked my way up to cooking for the the Admiral of the US Sixth Fleet the the commanding uh, admiral for all of the U.S. Uh, naval forces in the Mediterranean and the the west side of the Atlantic, so up and down the Europe European and, and African seacoast, mm. and it was fantastic. I mean, I, we were home ported in Gaeta, Italy, so when the ship wasn't out to sea, I got to live as an Italian. I made wow. breakfast, made breakfast and lunch for the admiral and his staff, and I was hanging up my uniform and driving my Fiat back to my Italian apartment at two in the afternoon. 
Uh, and I got to travel all over Europe and Italy and, and uh, the Mediterranean, both on and off duty. It was fantastic. Wow. I, the, a hardship, it was not. But uh, I, I started to get those skills that I was lacking. I needed to show up on time. I was responsible for others. I became a team member and, and a leader. And, and I started to realize that I actually enjoyed being in the service. I loved my, my uh, um, I loved the military and my time. It was an actual honor. But by about 2004, uh, both boys were in full swing. And I was still, I was watching, uh, I was on board the ship, but I was watching the, the war in Baghdad uh, on CNN. And there was just mm. something calling to me that said that I needed I needed to do something more direct. I wanted I wanted to go, so um, uh, I volunteered to I volunteered to to go to it was called an individual augmentee. They're like piecemeal teams for these uh, provincial reconstruction teams out in Afghanistan. And what they were were Air Force and Navy personnel filling in some of the the much needed army roles out there. So I went from cooking for the Admiral and then his small staff to cooking for six and seven hundred NATO troops out in the middle of the desert uh, at a, wow. in an army chow hall. Now it was definitely a culture shock uh, to say the least, but it was another very rewarding job. I got I had one other Navy cook with me and nine Afghan local national guys all cooking in my my chow hall. Uh, and hmm. you know, ironically, I uh, actually I learned in the four years I spent in Italy, I learned a little bit of Italian, uh, the language, and I I was, was pretty decent at getting by conversationally. And as it turned out, on our NATO base there were three platoons of italian special forces guys there <laughs> so uh, wow. i had to go all the way out to afghanistan to uh, practice my lingo and <laughs> i traded those uh rat some of our rations for prosciutto and wheels of cheese and and espresso so it was fantastic but uh wow that's that's great that's when i met some EOD technicians, explosive ordnance disposal, the military's bomb squad. They, these guys were uh, out at their armored truck and they pulled all of their gear out of their truck and they were doing preventive maintenance on it. They were just cleaning and making sure all the batteries were good to go and everything was functioning. And they had the bomb suits and their robots and all these other tools all laid out. It was like a cool guy yard sale. Uh, and and <laughs> I started talking to these guys and learned about the highly technical job they, and fast-paced job they, 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 they live, uh, the tight-knit brotherhood uh, they belong to, this fraternity of bomb techs, and the fact that they're first responders, lifesavers on the battlefield. And man, I was hooked right away. I put in a request to change jobs right there in Afghanistan. Uh, and of course, I'd have to wait to go through the, the training in the school when I got back. 
but the request came back as denied. I guess they they like my cooking too much. <laughs> but uh, uh, when I got back from Afghanistan from my deployment back to the United States, uh, my my contract was coming up, and I'd have to decide whether to reenlist or uh, or or walk. And I decided uh, if the Navy wasn't going to let me become an EOD technician, I'd go to one of the other branches. So I went right over to the Army recruiter. I gave him my service record, and I said, I want to go EOD. And they, they, they welcomed me in. So I changed uniforms. Hmm. I changed jobs. I started training to become a soldier and then an EOD technician. And like that, I was a, a bomb technician. Wow. So that, I, that is a, that, that's a, an impressive story. I think it probably the army never caught wind of how good your cooking was. So that's why they uh, immediately just said, sure. Yeah. If, if you're, if you're interested in doing that, we, we always need help in that area. But yeah, I, I think probably plenty of petitions were signed while you were in the Navy as the chef to uh, say, no, we, we don't want him moving over to anywhere but cooking. He makes fantastic foods. I think it's amazing, too, that on a serious note, you know, you hear very few individuals that have served in the military that have actually crossed over to any other branch. They normally have, you know, a lifetime career or whatever it is, whatever, however long they serve, they usually do it in one branch of service and just stick with it. And uh, that's it. But uh, that's amazing for you to go from up until a month entering into even the Navy, not having any interest in, in joining to being hooked uh, with the brotherhood and the camaraderie and, and everything else that the tight knit family environment that you have with the military uh, to then going all the way over to the other side of being, you know, you start off as a pastry chef desire uh, became a chef, got some of your culinary skills there, and then all the way went over to uh, EOD technician. Although I, I would imagine some of the uh, precision that you have to have with being a, a culinary master uh, probably translates pretty well into uh, the not having shaky hands uh, when you're dealing with explosives on the EOD side as well. All right. So it, it doesn't seem like an easy transition. I, I know I came up with a lot of that just now with uh, what I could foresee is, but how do you go from that whole, you know, dismantling of bombs to then cooking fudge? Because it seems like it kind of came full circle again. You, you, you went from the dismantling of bombs back into the love of cooking again. Uh, but how did that transition come about with, with that? Well, like you mentioned, it was there was a transition, but it was more of a constant transformation. Remember, I was kind of this do-nothing American slacker that joined the military and transformed into a service member. And then uh, I realized that I was I was in the wrong job, and I found something that really appealed to me and really it be, became the real career I was seeking. And, and I could continue to transform when uh, it, it, all along the way, I'm picking up skills, not just technical skills, but personal skills, leadership skills, uh, responsibility. Uh, and, and along the way, I'm also learning this resilience, no matter what the, the, the military life battle threw at me. 
I can bounce back uh, and I can I can use my skills, my team, uh, all the lessons I've learned along the way to help me get through these challenges. So I became an EOD technician and I deployed once to Iraq. And then in 2011, I deployed as a team leader and, and uh, the, the teams in the army run uh, with three people, uh, two team members and a team leader. And they always send the the highest ranking, the most uh, advanced uh, or uh, most senior uh, you know, team member, the team leader down to work on. If that's the that's the guy that gets in the bomb suit, uh, and that's the one that makes the long walk to go work on these IEDs or unexploded ordnance. So in 2011, uh, it was December, I'd been in in country for about eight months or so. I'd just taken a two week R and R vacation back to the United States, and I got to see my son turn one. I got to uh, visit with the whole family for a big Thanksgiving reunion, and as as you'll. You know, you'll see, you know, everything kind of revolves right around the holidays and Thanksgiving itself. Uh, because right after I'd returned from uh, my holiday break, I was right I was right back in my own armored truck with my team. They were picking me up from the airfield and I threw my bags in the back of the truck on top of the robot. And we got into a convoy and I was going to head right back to, to do the job. And along the way... Uh, there was a call from the convoy commander that said EOD. And I wasn't expecting a call. We're just get, jumping in this random uh, convoy to get back to work, uh, get back on duty. And the convoy commander says there's a suspicious package, suspected IED on the side of the road up ahead. Will you take a look? Well, of course. Uh, it was either me or they call out the local QRF, Quick Reaction Force, which could take who knows how long. There's already an EOD team in their convoy. So uh, I threw the the bag off the robot, the robot out of the truck, and we got to work. And the robot found what we always find. Almost every single time was like an oil jug full of homemade explosives and lamp cord, a nine volt battery, and a pressure plate made out of two pieces of plywood. It's very simple, very low tech. But um, as I was working on that one, and the robot had it taken apart, it was all safe. But I had to go get evidence, and I, I as I was I was approaching this this um, uh, device, a secondary device that hadn't been found yet, detonated right near me, and it took my eyesight, took my eyes, it cracked my skull in a few places, uh, and um, left me with a few scars. Uh, the medevac chopper came in within about 14 minutes and I was flying right back to that airfield and on my way to Kandahar, then to Landstuhl in uh, in Germany, and then to Walter Reed. Within 48 hours, I was in Bethesda, Maryland, beginning my new life as a blind person. There were plenty of surgeries to possibly save my eyes, but... I would never be able to do, uh, never be able to see again, never be able to do this job that I loved. And uh, I would have to figure out how to live this whole new life. So 
like I said, it, it you had to I had to fall back on quite a few of my lessons I've learned throughout my service and and life uh, in the military, and this never give up attitude. Just I mean, of course the, the the demons tried to get in the what ifs the why me's you know mm-hmm. we had the most highly trained military in the world and this low tech stuff it got me I was so I felt so guilty I felt angry at myself. But uh, I got I got back on my feet. Uh, I recovered, and I decided that if I was going to be a blind man, I was going to be the best darn blind man I could I could be. So uh, I got to work. In fact, the military asked me where I wanted to retire, and I said I didn't want to. I want to stay in uniform and keep working. And I realized that there were a couple. Uh, I found out there were a few blind veteran or blind service members that were still active duty. And they mm. were they were they were doing they were they were actually doing the work. I couldn't deploy again, and I couldn't actually defuse bombs without being able to see them. But I could I could teach. So they sent me to the EOD schoolhouse, and I began teaching as an instructor. While there, I uh, started uh, speaking across the country. I started finding out that there were people that can do just amazing things despite their, their injuries. There was a, as a blind man that climbed Mount Everest and another blind man that kayaked the entire Grand Canyon. I sought both of these guys out. I went mountain climbing with them. I went kayaking with these guys and I learned that there's a whole new world. It's still available to me. I just got to find the way instead, instead of saying, uh, I can't do that. I started saying, how can I do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what led me to uh, making fudge was uh, it's about four years into my into my blindness. I was I was feeling pretty good. I was I was actually living a great life, uh, finding uh, a new path. When um, I was I'd actually just completed a, a week long first date. Uh, with this, uh, this beautiful woman who is now my uh, my IT. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, she and I uh, are childhood friends. Actually, our mothers are childhood friends. And, you know, they stayed in, stayed in contact. And, of course, we uh, grew up not together. She, she grew up in Colorado. I grew up in Akron. But her mom would load up the, 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 the girls, the, the kids in the minivan and road trip all the way across back to Maryland, where they both grew up by way of Ohio. And I've known her since she was she was a little one. And we've just connected uh, over the Internet. And finally, I convinced her to come uh, for vacation to Florida, where I now live. And we had this this week long first date. And she was heading back to work. I was going back to work uh, just a couple of days later. And I was doing a speaking engagement. And after the speaking engagement, I was walking back into my house. And, and I was feeling just fatigued, dizzy, very, very odd, very off. And, and I told her, I was on the phone with her. I told her that I'm going to lay down for a nap. And I call her back after and I woke up just a few minutes after uh, after laying down with the most splitting headache. I mean, it doesn't do, do it. Migraine doesn't do it uh, justice. Uh, it, just the most awful, excruciating pain ever. And within moments, I knew I had to call 911. 
I called the, the, the operator and the operator said, state the nature of the uh, emergency. And I said, sure. I felt a little embarrassed saying this. I said, um, ma'am, uh, I've got a terrible headache. <laughs> and to her credit, she said, on a scale of one to 10, how bad's the pain? And I said, uh, ma'am, uh, I've never felt a pain like this in my life. And I've literally been blown up before. So uh, she sent the ambulance and what turned out to be was uh, bacterial meningitis. It crept in those those cracks in my skull from four years earlier and were trying to kill me right through my brain. Wow. Uh, I spent a few weeks in the hospital and then I came back home to recover. Uh, Michaela flew, turned, she had just flown back home. She was living in California and she flew right back out here and began nursing me back to health. My, my, my mom was by my side as well, but Michaela left her job, left her home. And after, you know, you know, we'd known each other essentially our whole lives, but we'd only had this one date and she was right here, uh, nursing me back to health. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. whether it was the heavy doses of antibiotics or the bacteria itself, it stole what was left of my hearing, uh, and also my balance. So I was completely deaf, completely blind, and I couldn't even get back on my treadmill to work out because it felt like somebody was trying to steal the rug out from under me. And I was I was sitting in my my like breakfast counter, trapped in my body. My whole world ended at the end of my fingertips, and and I I just. I didn't know what to do. It was a very lonely, frustrating time. And, and I, I was those those demons again, you know, the why me's, the what ifs. I'm like, when when does one guy have enough? You know, I thought lightning didn't strike twice. You know, when is the soldier paid his fair share? And uh, I did what anybody in my situation would do. I started a chocolate company. Um, <laughs> why not? Why not? <laughs> I just... Uh, decided that I was, I was going to get busy doing something. And it, the, the, right about the same time, Thanksgiving was coming. So we decided to just throw a feast. I was going to make this huge spread, all sorts of fixings, everything you think of. I, was, I just went crazy making food. Like weeks in advance, I was making desserts. I would make one batch after another, throwing nuts and spices, just one after the other. One and I was going to the liquor cabinet and like, no, oh, that'd be good. <laughs> and, um, and and I, Michaela said, this was like six months after getting out of the hospital, and I was still deaf. I was waiting for the surgeries for my my cochlear implants to to, to um, take effect. Like I have to get them programmed and all that. And it just took a lot of time to even learn how to hear again. So it was almost a year before I could actually understand another human voice. So I was totally deaf, totally blind, and I'm cooking. And my uh, girlfriend at the time, my wife now, Michaela, would say, you know, she, she saw two things. One, she, she saw something on my face that she hadn't seen in six months, and that was the smile. Uh, and the other thing she saw, she noticed, was the fudge was just piling up. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there was more fudge than any family could finish in one one holiday. So she started sneaking it out the front door. 
and I say sneaking, like you got to be real stealthy around a blind deaf guy. But <laughs> uh, she was giving it away. Is that she would just give it away to the friends and neighbors, and then they were coming back and saying, you know, this is really, really good. Can can we we have a, a birthday or a bar mitzvah or you know a shower or something and and can we buy some of this for for from you? And the capitalist in me said, "Well, of course you may." <laughs> and that's how extraordinary delights was born. That is uh, an amazing story, and uh, thank you for filling in the the gap of uh, I realized as you started answering it, that I cut you off for telling the rest of the story, but you did it flawlessly of tying back in the ending or uh, the, uh, the still the continued timeline of how you were injured by the explosive and then how it all tied into, uh, you know, how you're making confections and how you got your business today. But, um, you know, it's interesting when I was kind of researching, talking with you, uh, looking into a few pieces of information. Some of it you share with uh, others on your website, but certainly not to the extent and the detail that you went into. So I appreciate you sharing that because I feel very fortunate to learn uh, the inside information, uh, the little bit more nuggets of information that is probably now that I know it a little bit more generalized on your website you don't go into obviously all the detail of all the little different pieces along the way but um, it's interesting when I was kind of trying to find quotes and things and talking about Forrest Gump uh, there was one that kind of stood out to me and uh, he says my mama always said you've got to put the past behind you before you can move on no doubt uh, that applies to you because it's not one time that you had to put it behind you two times you had to put it behind you because it wasn't that you got both injuries at the same time you actually lost your sight first as you said and you had to overcome that hurdle I'm curious too on that is how long did it take you from the point that you okay you got injured you can't see any longer uh, which is instantaneous from the explosion of that device. And then how long from that point did it take you to kind of have that mental uh, changeover to say, you know what, there are other people that have been able to do things. And I'm inspired by other stories that they've been able to make it. How, what, how long of a gap? I'm just curious from the point that you lost your sight to when you, you know, maybe were no longer down and out or depressed or whatever it was to say, nope, you know what, I, I'm going to make something still of myself. I'm not done. You know, I, it's a hard question to answer because um, immediately after an injury, the military, uh, like the Wounded Warrior program, kind of takes over where you are on this path to recovery the, 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 from the medevac chopper through the medic, you know, the DOD medical, you know, healthcare system to Walter Reed, the surgeries. You know, the nurses coming and going and I'm, you know, family members and I mean, it's right there in the beltway. So there are actually like congressmen and senators stopping into uh, the, you know, the, the room. It's so busy that uh, you don't have a whole lot of time for personal contemplation. And frankly, that was probably a good thing. Yeah, you know, I was already on a path to recovery by uh, whether I wanted to be or not. And by the time 
I started, I, I had time to myself to think and, and to really, uh, uh, really, really reflect on what had happened. I had already, my feet were already moving. The wheels were already turning. So I decided that, you know, there's, there's no stopping now. I'm, I can't just stop and uh, feel sorry for myself. Besides, I had a great support system. My family is a, is just amazing. My uh, my brother's six years younger than I am. God, it was, it was 15 years ago, I think, uh, was in a horrible accident uh, and permanently disfigured, permanent, permanently injured. And... He was in a coma for over a month and then in uh, physical therapy uh, recovery for over six months where he had to learn how to walk and speak and everything all over again. And my mom was right next to him every step of the way, every single day. And she moved into the hospital to help him recover. So when I lost my eyesight, it, I was in Walter Reed. She came in bright and cheery. Hi, honey. We're going to get through this. This ain't my first rodeo. <laughs> you know, how how can you feel bad, you know, for, sorry for yourself when, you know, everything just puts things in perspective? Absolutely. So by losing your sight, how have you coached yourself uh, to becoming the expert fudge maker that you are today? You know, that's another thing. And trust me, there are plenty of uh, things to complain about the military health care and veteran VA health care and all that. But that's one of the things that I think they do really well is uh, there are 14 blind rehabilitation centers around various uh, VA hospitals in the, the U.S. I went to the Augusta VA hospital and I spent six months learning how to be blind. They taught me hmm. all about uh, the, you know, the, the accessibility tools like talking phone, talking computer, you know, learn to navigate the world with my, through my cane and living skills like being in the kitchen and trying to figure out what's on um you know the the, the labels of the, the cans and boxes and stuff and just tips and tricks so um beside, with that and coupled with just you know years of experience in various kitchens and on the ships and whatnot it was just natural that uh i would go back to the kitchen first uh, as you know a hobby and a passion but also as a, a bit of therapy, uh, mm. it became my art therapy, so to speak. It was to help me out of a, uh, um, you know, a dark, so to speak, not, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> dark place. And, and it was therapeutic and then it was fun. And then it was a business and it's still fun. But um, it's not so much having the skills to do it as the passion. And the skills follow. Interesting. Okay. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the time that you spent hiking after the explosion? Absolutely. Um, I knew that I would, mostly because you know my time in the service, physical fitness is, is a very important part, aspect of uh, military life. And I w was spending months lying down on my, you know, my back uh, in a in a hospital bed, and then it, when I was healthy enough to uh, to to get up and move, it's not like I can just lace up my my shoes and go out the front door and go for a run. So I had to figure out how I was going to maintain my physical fitness 
plus not go crazy being stuck indoors. So when I learned about these these guys that is these amazing um, blind people and, and other uh, disabled service members that are accomplishing these things, I sought these guys out, and I found out uh, about Team River Runner, which is a great organization that does the kayaking, and I I found uh, through my research. Eric Weinmayer, the first blind uh, person to ever climb Mount Everest, he may still be the only one, uh, started taking wounded service members every year on the anniversary of his uh, uh, Everest expedition up various uh, mountains. So on the third iteration of what they were calling uh, what was then Soldiers to Summits, it's now no barriers warriors uh, mm. on the third iteration i joined an all wounded veteran team up a mountain in uh, the peruvian andes nearly eighteen thousand feet wow. and um of course to get up an eighteen thousand foot peak in the andes you got to do a little bit of training and unfortunately it is really hard to find a decent mountain to climb to practice on in florida <laughs> so, uh, I packed, I, I, I figured if, if uh, I was going to go uh, uh, up 18,000 feet, I would pack my, uh, pack a backpack with like an 80 pounds <clears> worth <throat> of gear and I would find the tallest building I could around here. And I found this, this like 16 story uh, condominium complex and I just went up and down the stairs all day. And if I could do that a hundred or two hundred times, then maybe I'll be ready for the mountains. And that's that's how I stayed fit. And the running was just a byproduct. It was a, it was that was like a daily thing that I could do with with local friends, neighbors. We got a tether. Uh, in fact, I started with one of those little dog tug of war ropes. I hold one knot. My running guide, my partner, would hold the other knot. And I would just run shoulder to shoulder with this person as I got all my cues right from that rope. And uh, soon I was running marathons. And in 2015, I ran my first Boston Marathon. Wow. That's that's incredible. Uh, I'm sure you probably drove the residents of that apartment complex a little crazy with uh, running up and down their stairwell. Uh, at different times of the day, but uh, certainly I, that's ingenious too of a way of being able to train. As you said, you don't have mountains around you, and uh, the highest thing usually in Florida is either the waves or the palm trees. So uh, there was really no way of you training other than that. So that's it, amazing uh, ingenuity, even on your part too, and also to have the uh, you know thought process and well, how do I do this if I can't see? Um, you know, being able to do something where you can hold on, not to someone physically, but you can do it through a rope kind of thing or some kind of tether that you can be able to kind of get your cues through, like you said. So we, we talked about how you stay motivated from the point that you lost your eyesight. But the second time around being that you lost your hearing, how did you stay motivated and not give up? Uh, how did you go and, and have to do that? Tra excuse me, that transition? Well, like uh, I've kind of been saying throughout here is that it's, it's, it's not about 
now I can't do something. It's about how can I. I love uh, one of my favorite quotes from Jim Rohn is, uh, uh, and and I always botch quotes. Um, <laughs> Jim Jim Rohn says uh, the unsuccessful unsuccessful find excuses, the successful find the way. So I just you know now for a long time. Um, all those audio-based accessibility tools, the talking phone, talking computer, barcode scanner, all that kind of stuff, it was rendered obsolete now that I was deaf. So and we had a friend come by and I, of course, uh, I thought at that time, I probably should learn Braille uh, at the Blind Center. <laughs> but with all those technologies, it's, it's like an archaic uh, uh, code um, that's it's a dying art. Uh, but a, a friend came by who knows how to teach Braille, and I started learning how to read Braille. And it was mm. it was kind of t- t- tedious, but I was I was getting by. Um, and, but then, of course, you know, a few months later, the uh, the cochlear device started working, and I was actually hearing again a completely different way. But I could start hearing my my scanner and my phone, all of that. <laughs> of course the braille just, just dropped yeah gone uh, that no i'm done with you um but it's it's all about uh finding uh solutions to your problems and and not not carrying your problems around like an excuse absolutely uh, it's that's an excellent point we've just struck the match with aaron hill's story so don't go anywhere when we come back from this short break we're going to talk about his business, EOD Confections. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Ignite Your Business Radio. I'm your host, Josh Wilhelm. We're back with Aaron Hale from EOD Confections. So, Aaron, your job seems pretty sweet, and that was absolutely an intended pun, no doubt, uh, as a chocolatier. I'd like to hear more about the strategies that are behind selling chocolate besides, hey, that tastes really good. Uh, So how do you market chocolates? Do your sales skyrocket during Valentine's like we talked at the early part of the monologue was uh, discussing about uh, Valentine's being a big, big uh, industry time of year for you but uh do your sales do you see those same trends with your sales skyrocketing around the valentine's day we're absolutely a seasonal uh business uh we do uh do decent sales throughout the year however uh it's 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 the the holidays halloween thanksgiving you know christmas time where we see the most sales and of course valentine's and easter however in the warmer months, it definitely slows down. Additionally, we, you know, because uh, how um, susceptible chocolate is to the heat, we pack all of our, uh, our our treats in, you know, coolers with dry ice or, you know, ice packs, which also, you know, tends to increase the shipping a little bit over the summer. So the warm weather months, it slows down a bit. Got it. Okay. So let's let's shift back to uh, one thing I was curious about, but in doing some research, getting to know you a little bit more, one thing I was curious about is some people who are deaf and then get the cochlear implants like you have, 
they they noticed that there are things that make sounds that were not they weren't aware of before having it, like the air conditioning turning on or you know unrolling unrolling toilet paper kind of thing. Uh, can you tell me about a little bit more about your experience of getting the cochlear implants as someone who could previously hear? So you had quite a few years under your belt of hearing sounds and noticing things. But how have you combined the technology that comes with the uh, implants with the technology that you use in your business? Well, uh, it's certainly not the same as real organic hearing. My ears are completely turned off. Uh, so this isn't like a hearing aid that amplifies sound. It takes a digital a representation of sound from it takes it through the microphones it turns into a digital signal and it there's an electrode that's actually connected right into the cochlea uh on onto the auditory nerve and my my brain had to learn how to hear all over again through this new signal and the result is is similar to let's say you call uh, a friend and your friend's at the restaurant is at a table with a crowd of people uh, maybe by themselves who knows and they put your friend puts the phone on speaker and leaves it right in the middle of the table so you're talking to your friend but you're also hearing whatever's going on and it's a wall of sound so you know imagine waiters you know moving glasses and clinking uh, utensils or whatever's going on around other conversations any inver interference also interferes with the conversation you're trying to have or whatever you're trying to listen to that can be difficult um, on the flip side, the technology is amazing. I mean, 30, 40 years ago, I would have been pulling the full Helen Keller. Uh, <laughs> but today, like I said, I have the, the talking phone, the talking computers. And I, right now, I am Bluetooth connected from my cochlear implant to what's a, a lapel mic. It's actually designed to be... Um, so I can give to so my wife at this uh, at a restaurant so she can talk like Secret Service style into this <laughs> mic and it'll go right to the cochlea and even bypass the, you know, uh, the, the microphones on the thing. And she becomes the voice, the loudest voice in my head. But it also has a, a headphone jack. So I have that thing plugged into my computer and mm. the computer... Uh, has the voiceover or text to, to speech software. So sure. it is a very clear signal, clear, more clear than um, the uh, ambient sound. So that's the best way for me. It's better than an actual phone call. So uh, that's how I use, uh, use this technology to uh, do, you know, to, to, to read reports, to um, do my emails. Um, when I connect to my phone, I can listen to my phone reading my email from my pocket and nobody is the wiser. I can even turn the screen uh, black so nobody can read my screen or hear the phone talking to me while I'm listening to a podcast or reading an audiobook or anything. It's, uh, it's very handy and it's amazing technology and it's 101 ways I can screw anything up. <laughs> well, what's, what's funny is the very first time that you and I spoke, 
uh, we were trying to figure out the, you know, the virtual meeting thing. And uh, you had immediately, you were saying, yeah, technology is amazing. And you described that very lapel uh, microphone with the Bluetooth that, you know, your wife and you going through a crowd uh, that she's able to kind of speak into it so that you just hear her voice. And then you shifted her over to say, and that's how I'm listening to you. You're the only voice in my head. And immediately I apologized uh, to you for my my voice being the only thing you can hear. Uh, but it, it's, it is absolutely amazing. I mean, like you said, the technology has come so far and how you can utilize it now is absolutely just mind boggling uh, to say the least. But all right. So this is kind of like asking a parent uh, to pick a favorite child. But do you have a favorite flavor of fudge? Uh well, I love them all and can't keep them in the house. Uh, I would say I'm most proud of our American pick-me-up. While all the others are pretty straightforward, like chocolate, uh, chocolate walnut, and strawberry and all that, American pick-me-up is a little bit um, of a, it's a, a throwback to my time in Italy. So uh, it's 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 an all American version of tiramisu, and tiramisu literally uh, it, it translates to pick me up. I mean, it's got coffee, alcohol, chocolate, nuts. I mean, what better you know dessert is there? I don't know. So <laughs> I decided I was going to do an all American version. So I've got American pick American pick me up is two layers. The top layer is a white chocolate with a bourbon cream instead of you know amaretto or frangelico. And uh, instead of hazelnuts, it's uh, toasted Georgia pecans. Wow. And then the lower la- lower uh, la- uh, layer is uh, you know a darker chocolate with American Pride Roasters coffee. Oh, that sounds amazing. I, I think you have now allowed me to have a new favorite child, and it's none of my actual children. That that sounds amazing. <laughs> uh, I, I definitely have to try that out. That sounds amazing. So thank you for sharing that. And and I was curious because as you started to talk about the whole uh, Italy experience, I was like, okay, well then wouldn't it be called like, you know, something like love something? I mean, you think of Italy, you think of love, you think of, you know, all that, but uh, it makes sense that the tiramisu, I didn't realize it translated into pick me up. And so that makes complete sense of why you did an American version of it. So all comes together. All right. So you applied for and were awarded a grant with Holidays for Heroes. How did you apply for that grant? And is that something that other small business owners uh, can do and that you would recommend that are are veterans? Well, there are uh, lots of uh, you know, veteran service organizations out there that do a lot of great work, and uh, I'm not certain about it's been it's been a few years now. I'm not certain if Holidays for Heroes still does that grant, um, but I would first go to holidaysforheroes.org and and uh, look up the program. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Um, we just sent an email and got the ball rolling. And I'd already done uh, some some events with them, even uh, spoken on behalf of the organization at some of the fundraisers. So I think the, the application process was a little more informal for me. Uh, they just wanted me to, to 
formally request it and they would put the process, start the process. However, mm. there are so many great organizations out there that uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't put all my eggs in one basket there. Sure. Okay. That makes complete sense. So uh, let's go over to how you and Michaela have built the EOD uh, business and, and specifically fudge business into what it is today. How you took it from, so we understand that it was that uh, one Thanksgiving holiday season that you were just cooking like a madman in the kitchen and just pumping out fudge, pumping out everything you could think of for uh anything you could think of and cook up, but how did it go from that into the successful business that you have today? It was a, certainly another transformation, another evolution in, in our thinking because we just started making fudge just for ourselves. It was, like I said, it was just uh, therapeutic. It was fun and tasted good. And then uh, people were coming back and asking for more and, and we started selling it, but we didn't know it was going to be a business. So I mean, our, our first batch of fudge we sold went out on our own platters, mm. like our own chi- our own china. <laughs> uh, the, 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 you know, part of what we sold got returned to us. Uh, but um, then we would, it started it started that that thought process. Or do we want to do? An online store? Did we want to go to brick and mortar? Do we want to sell at um, fairs and and farmers markets and stuff like that? Did, and when we started uh, when we started looking at these things, I mean, we were at the same time we we're starting to get um, orders from friends in in other locations that had uh, maybe corporate tie-ins. We were actually getting. Before we had a website, we were already getting corporate orders from like Boeing for wow. for, for 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 you know holiday gift corporate orders, and so yeah, I was I was I was cooking fourteen hour days uh, at our home kitchen stove while Michaela was cutting the fudge off the trays and packaging and wrapping them up. We actually had a shrink wrap machine right next to my treadmill in the garage. And if anybody wants a shrink wrap machine, we're done with it. Um, (laughs) But uh, uh, we soon realized that we did not, we did not want to go the brick and mortar route. We didn't want to be cooking at the stove and wrapping fudge all day long. We didn't want to be standing in front of a register. So what we decided to do was start seeking out um, uh, another another more viable uh, avenue. And we found a co-packer, a commercial or a contract food kitchen, a larger candy producer that could make my recipes just the way I want them and do all of the labor for us. So we found a place in Savannah, a 60,000 square foot facility that can has the capacity of making 1,000 to 2,000 pounds of our fudge every single day. And they do it just the way I would, just on a larger scale. So that freed up my hands and my kitchen for research and development. 
and uh, freed up uh, Michaela's hands and her, her her eyes and you know freed her up to do more of the social media the accounting and we started working on our business rather than in it awesome uh, and that's great and we're going to talk a little bit later about uh one of one of the things i like with your social media you guys are doing a great job with it is your segment called cooking without looking uh which i i love that um but we'll, we'll talk about it in a little bit so when we come back with aaron hale we're going to go throw some logs on the fire and learn more about eod confections do not go anywhere And we're back with Aaron Hill from EOD Confections. Aaron, I have a few questions about the chocolate industry and how you are. And again, I I am not apologizing for any of these puns, but how you are milking it for all it's worth. Uh, So let's jump right in. Are there any similarities in the role of an EOD technician and the EOD Confections president and co-founder? Maybe not directly, but uh, uh, of course... It's all about finding solutions, problem solving. I mean, you've got in both jobs, you've got to be pretty creative. Uh, and sometimes, uh, maybe not directly with the business, but certainly through my uh, my disabilities. One of the things I talk about when I speak to uh, larger groups is uh, it's almost like a parable. My uh, experiences in, in uh, the military as an EOD team leader, I uh, each each EOD team is given like an entire shipping shipping uh, shipping container full of tools, bomb suits, robots, power tools, ropes and hooks and grappling hooks and all that kind of stuff. Uh, all to, to to defeat anything that explodes from little bullets to nuclear weapons. We've got it. Uh, and then we get deployed to you know, the, the, the battlefield where um, we're given this armored truck. It's called a Jerv, and it's not quite as big as a shipping container. Uh, and it's got to fit it's got to fit three team members and as many tools as we can cram into this thing so we pick the most important tools things we need we know we're going to need and then we leave a lot of tools behind and then we get to afghanistan where most of our missions were on goat trails and couldn't fit any vehicles of any size so we're all dismounted or on foot and we got to carry only the tools that we can fit on our back and that we want to carry all day through the hot sun. And that ends up being a few blocks of C4, some, so that, just some rope and some carabiners and maybe an evidence kit or something. And then it's our water and our food and fresh pair of socks. So we carry you know, what we need, but we're still expected to perform the same duties, the same job. We still have a mission to perform, and we're not going to say, no, we're not, quitting isn't an option. So now uh, an entirely new world, uh, blind and deaf and business owner, parent, you know, husband, I've still got a mission, a duty to perform and 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 I have to do it. The, I have like I have an ethical imperative to be the best I can at it. 
So I can't complain about not having the tools I left behind. Uh, I've got to make do with what I do have. And I got to rely on the team I have around me to, uh, to help me do so. Mm. Interesting. That's a excellent, uh, segue into, uh, the correlation between the two. Have you encountered any kind of stigmas around being a disabled small business owner, either by clients or, uh, you know, even competitors, any, any stigma that you've encountered around that? Um, most people like myself never consider what uh, the disabled are actually capable of. They see the injury, they see the disability, and they don't really see much past it. Uh, they underestimate the disabled. And I it just, I'm guilty of it also. And I mean, when I was at uh, when I was in the hospital and I was just just learning how to be blind, people coming into my uh, vet, you know, VA employees were coming into my my room and asking if I wanted to go for a bike ride, and I said, "You're messing with me." <laughs> they said, "No, no, no, no. Uh, you know, tandem cycling is a real thing. It's actually a Paralympic sport, and it's serious. It's a serious business." Uh, okay, paradigm shift. And then somebody come into my uh, room and say, you want to go golfing? Like, now you're messing with me. <laughs> no, there, there are actually two national blind organizations, the U.S. Blind Golfers Association and the American Blind Golfers Association. I mean, that is, they take that golfing seriously, uh, like any other golfers, you know. But, it, I mean, every single day, my own paradigm was shifted. As I learned how to become this blind person, I can't expect People have never encountered it, a, a blind business owner or a blind deaf business owner to uh, they can't expect them to, to know the capabilities yet. And frankly, sometimes being underestimated has its uh, benefits. Uh, True. I, I get to I get to over deliver all the time. Plus, mm. like I like you already know, I've got the best uh co-founder co-owner best partner you could you could ask for absolutely uh your story has been shared across a variety of outlets uh has been featured on espn and other shows podcasts uh we're not going to make you say that uh being on our show is your ultimately your favorite experience but uh aside from that uh being on these various outlets uh have they helped your business grow? Absolutely. You know, getting the word out, of course, on and any media, uh, it's it's good advertising, and at the same time, it keeps me active, keeps me moving, and uh, keeps me networking. So not only am I getting the business name out, I'm getting my own name out, and I'm meeting others. And you never know who's going to be the next customer. You don't you never know who's going to be the next business partner. Uh, so I treat everyone with respect and, and dignity. And I, uh, I try to make try to make as many friends along the way as I can. Uh, and um, with all the, the media attention, it's uh, it definitely helps. Absolutely. I think that's an excellent uh point to pull out of that is no matter of disability, no matter of your upbringing, anything, 
at the core of it, there is no harm in having too many friends. You can, you can have as many friends as you possibly can even count up to. Uh, and I do not see a disadvantage of having too many friends along the path because uh, you never know when you need support. You never know when you can help them out. Uh, so there is so many benefits. And I really, other than maybe uh, in your case, uh, not having a big enough house to have everyone over for Thanksgiving uh, can be a bit of a challenge and the negative aspect of having too many friends. But I certainly don't see, and, and all joking aside, any negative aspect of that. And uh, I think that's a good rule of thumb for everyone in life is look at everyone as being a friend, uh, especially right now with this climate of a lot of division in our country, that this more than ever is a time to kind of put your differences aside. And especially around this, I mean, we're recording this the day before Thanksgiving, that it's a time to be thankful and a time to be thankful for your friends and your family, of course. So I thank you for sharing that. I, I I appreciate that. Um, you offer a fudge subscription uh, plan, which honestly sounds deliciously amazing and something I definitely need to sign up for. Uh, but what is the strategy behind creating a subscription plan around your fudge? And what does that look like from a business side? Well, uh, of course, subscription-based uh, sales lately have been um, they're, they're they're the major money maker on on uh, internet based uh, online uh, websites and businesses and we have a product and we have a way to make things easier for both us and the customer if they want to give a, a gift that's better than you know give a gift that gives uh, all year round or for six months. Uh, and they don't have to purchase every single month. You know, they just have to click once. It makes it easier for everybody. And then we have it automated on our side. So uh, it's, it, we don't have to process multiple orders. Subscriptions are just, uh, just a smart way to continue whatever business you've got. You're absolutely correct. Uh, and a lot of people look at their business or their industry and kind of go, yeah, I, absolutely. I can do subscription, especially digital. You know, digi digital is a good one that uh, oftentimes a lot of business owners think about saying, yeah, that makes complete sense. I can turn my service or turn something into a subscription base. A lot of people on the food side I know have pushed back. And I think it's probably because of the old way of thinking that not wanting to kind of think outside the box. No, again, that one, that pun was not intended, by the way, a box of chocolates and fudge and all that. But uh, all joking aside, I think it's genius that you guys have been able to come up with uh, a plan for, right around your product that allows it to be something that you can bank on as a subscription each month versus looking at the individual sales of one box, two box, three box of chocolates and trying to, you know, certainly your business is revolved around a numbers game. You have to sell large quantities to be profitable. Uh, you've got, you know, expenses within the ingredients, you have expenses around the packaging, the facility, even now that you're expanding, all of those are costs. Um, and so you're talking about something that, you know, traditionally for fudge is something my mom makes it all around the holiday. And it's, it's something that can, you know, fit easily in the palm of your hand. 
Uh, so it's very small in, in, in comparison to other products, like even a bottle of wine. Bottle of wine is much larger, and you know one bottle can suffice for, uh, for depending on the person, can suffice for uh, two nights, maybe even just one. <laughs> but um, you know, chocolates uh, certainly the box can last you a little bit longer as well. But I I'm impressed with you being able to find an ability to turn even a product line, a product business like yours, a uh, commodity that is is truly consumed and turn it into a subscription-based uh, business. So hats off to you for that. That's uh, good thinking, good business strategizing and uh, delivery there. So, all right. Uh, you have been asked to speak at several events and run a very successful chocolate business. It's almost like you have two careers. Uh, most people who are motivational speakers do that as their full-time career. Uh, do you give away chocolate at your speaking events like Oprah? So you get some chocolates and you get some chocolates and you get some chocolates. Uh, but do you prefer cooking in, in, or do you prefer cooking versus public speaking? Is that something that you would have been comfortable even doing before your accident? Well, I've got, I've got lots of passions. Uh, I love to cook. I love to, uh, you know, get out and be active and run, climb, swim, all of that. I love telling my story and speaking to groups in the hopes that I can motivate and inspire, maybe help somebody who's going through a difficult time of their own. Most of the, the time, I'm enjoying these experiences with others. And I think that's part of the reason I love all of these things is because it's a shared experience. Uh, it doesn't seem to me like two careers. It just seems like the niche that I've put, uh, I've built for myself. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, Aaron, it's been our pleasure to have you here on Ignite Your Business Radio Show. To say your story is inspiring feels like a major understatement. I have really appreciated your openness and honesty on our show today, sharing your story, uh, you know, sharing your inspiration with others that potentially are going through the same thing right now. Uh, but before we go, I do have a couple of burning questions for you. You share cooking lessons, and we talked a little bit about this before, but you share cooking lessons on your Instagram, which you call Cooking Without Looking. Uh, I love the the title of it. It is fun. It's whimsical. Uh, very clever name. But you answer questions from users about being blind. Uh, have you found that people are more comfortable asking your questions about your disabilities because you're comfortable talking about them? Or do you feel that it's maybe because, you know, it, it tends to be people feel a lot more boisterous online. Uh, you know, we oftentimes think about this from the standpoint of political discussions. People are a lot more abrasive, a lot more uh, encouraged, or, or they feel more encouraged to be able to speak their mind. So do you feel that it's just the online platform and that's what allows them to maybe ask questions about something they might not otherwise to your face feel as comfortable saying, or do you think it's just because... You know, you're freely talking about it, so they might as well be able to throw in a question that they've been really fascinated with or, or looking to understand more about. Uh, I believe that 
Yes, there, with the anonymity of the internet, that people have more of a freedom to speak their mind. This is a double-edged sword. However, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I, all the time I get some really good questions uh, and some that I really do need to think about uh, before answering and, and contemplate myself because I sometimes I never consider myself uh, by myself. However, mm. I got to tell you, preface that uh, or uh, suffix that uh, with um, uh, one time I got a great question, but this was an in-person at a speaking engagement where uh, I guess he's a uh, uh, head of a company. And so it was actually at a YPO event. event. And uh, he asked, so tell me, what's sex like? <laughs> not knowing how to answer that in front of a crowd i said well when a man loves a woman he goes no, no 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 you know what i mean what's it like being blind and i said well and i kind of did the i couldn't of course can't see but i did the notional looking around the room going uh well we all know who likes it with the lights on uh, but uh, some, sometimes I just, especially when you go go live on like Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, those things, you you just just put on your uh, put on the spot, and that's part of the excitement, part of the the, the fun, the adventure of doing it, not knowing what questions are going to come to you, but it's also it, it's a way, it's a great way to connect to your target market it's a great way to connect to potential customers to really open yourself up and be uh be original be yourself yep no absolutely i i think that's one of the biggest components of the successes uh being in the marketing industry I, i've noticed and they, it's talked about quite a bit but uh, the success of social media especially revolves around the being you. It's not being fabricated. It's not being, uh, you know, stenciled out at what everybody else is doing, what everybody else is saying, but it's the putting yourself out there as you, you know, being real, being open, being honest, not doing the canned responses all the time, not doing the canned conversations all the time, but having that open dialogue with people, it lets them into your life. It lets them into your world. And people, especially right now with COVID, is even more uh, apparent that people are, are just dying for that because being locked down, we didn't all realize before COVID how impactful and how much the human interaction, even as simple as seeing someone smile because they're being covered up now by masks, you can't even see the the human smile a lot of times. And that human smile we all took for granted because that aspect of it raises dopamines. I mean, there are studies that go about talking about just the human inflections in a face that you can, it stirs up emotions, it stirs up happiness, all of those different things within the person that's seeing you. You know, even for you, for yourself, having a disability like that, while you can't necessarily see someone else, but hearing maybe someone laugh raises your dopamines. It raises your mood because you're getting humor out of it. So that that social component really revolves around that interaction, that being injected into someone else's world. 
and being able to connect with it ultimately is, is what, you know, that, that happens from it. So, um, okay. So getting to know your story more, we understand that you met your wife after your accident, which we've talked about. Um, again, you, you and I, uh, have spoken about this before, but you have an amazing business partner, uh, life partner, just amazing woman by your side that, anyone knowing your story and hearing about your story would have said, I don't know if I could have done that. I don't know if I could have stood by someone's side. You weren't even engaged when all of the the hearing pieces of it were going on that, like you said, you'd only had one date, one date. And she had gone back to work. And then after all of it happened with your hearing came right back. What what was it that, and I don't know if you've asked her this, and I know she's not here with us today to, to be able to answer, but what was it that she told you brought her back to you? What was the connection that, again, you know, just to kind of be honest and transparent, someone that didn't know you, someone that just, you know, stranger out of the, out of the world, uh, sees that you have physical uh, ailments because of the explosion, uh, you've you have disabilities that you know we've talked about it not not being seen as a disability but um, you know these are things that are physical attractions a lot of times for for the spouses so what was it, it did she ever tell you was the part that brought her the connection that you guys have what was it for her that's a, a question better asked for her or to her but um we did, did we hadn't known each other since childhood and we'd only kindled this romantic flame uh you know earlier like yeah i'd been uh this was 2014 2015 uh i'd recently been divorced and and we struck up a conversation over the phone over internet and uh we it's actually like you know high school middle school all over again we're just spending hours <laughs> on the phone uh across you know the entire country and by the time i'd convinced her to come out for that first date we were actually further along in a relationship than than just a first date uh sure we'd known each other for a very long time but to come back and, and, and yes uh, there are far less dramatic ways to get a second date but um, it was definitely worth it uh, <laughs> but she uh, yeah, yeah, I ended up in the hospital and she came back to nurse me back to health and I think that's besides just the connection we had that's just the per- type of person she is she she gives all of herself without asking uh, for anything in return, and, and she's she's just just an incredibly giving person and caring. Hmm. I I love hearing about that because uh, yeah, there are a lot of situations in life that uh, throw you the the curveballs that feel like a negative, but the situation of you connecting uh, with that law really like you said, a lifelong friend and it blossoming into a personal relationship further than the friendship. But at the core of it, you started with a very secure friendship. And that probably also too had a very big impact in 
uh, evolving into and blossoming into that personal relationship that you guys had and it continues to grow deeper uh, you know with your marriage with your family with your business and all aspects of, of you sharing your life with her uh, all right, so let, let's shift over to a, a fun question I've been kind of curious about. As I mentioned, I, I've got kids, and so this one kind of popped into my head. But uh, dessert seems obviously a very important part in your family, uh, as it is part of your business, of course. So, of, of course, it would make sense that it, it's part of uh, your family uh, and an important one at that. Are your kids allowed to eat dessert before uh, they finish their dinner or is it kind of like, you know, like that scene in movies where you're kind of handing food underneath the table, but instead it's chocolates under the table to the kids to, uh, <laughs> or are they, they have to finish their dinner traditionally and then they can enjoy some desserts. They can have dessert before dinner. If I can. <laughs> and truth is, ah, there you go. Truth is we don't, we don't, um, we don't eat dessert every day or very often around here dessert we we uh consider uh, a rare treat and especially since i eat a lot of sugar just tasting in you know our r&d lab we we try not to keep too many sweets around the house okay uh thanksgiving is an important holiday for your company because it helped you start cooking in the fashion and the business that you're in today obviously you were cooking well before uh you know just even thanksgiving but uh as we talked about we're actually uh, having this conversation the day before thanksgiving uh can you tell me more about your thanksgiving plans and are they a, a traditional one for you or are you doing something different this year well, one of the major things that we're doing differently is we're recording nearly every aspect of it. Uh, we we uh, do one, sometimes two TikTok videos every single day. And through the holidays, we're sharing uh, the various ways I go about preparing our holiday meals. So it's it's very different trying to plan. It, you know, one thing it's it's difficult enough planning a Thanksgiving feast. It's another thing trying to plan it while also recording it and the steps that go into you know staging, uh, you know, recording of cooking. Uh, but uh, uh, it's interesting. One of the one of my favorite things about Thanksgiving, besides the 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 fact that you know it's an excuse to, to to gather your friends and family around, and it's also an excuse to be absolute gluttons. Um, I I get to invite a few of the EOD students. Uh, I was at one point an instructor, and we moved very close to the EOD schoolhouse. Uh, so what happens is. During the holidays, and these uh, generally the EOD students are fresh in the military. They just came out of basic training, and they're going to their uh, career school, and they go to they come to the EOD school, and they haven't earned a whole lot of vacation days yet, leave days, and they want to save it up for the the winter break for for Christmas and all of that New Year's, so Thanksgiving. Uh, even though the base is pretty much shut down, these guys are kind of in the schools shut down. The these the, these students are kind of stranded in the barracks 
without being able to go home. So we invite a few of them, as many as we can, we can, you know, fit at our table and, you know, feed. And we, we invite them to, to share in our Thanksgiving. So tomorrow we're going to get a handful of EOD students and, and, and bring them into our Thanksgiving. Well, that is very thoughtful of you. And I know uh, they certainly appreciate it. You and I had talked about this a little bit before that uh, one of the reasons that you also do this, as you've kind of discussed, is that they usually, so being so early on, especially in their career in the military, they're only given a few uh, holidays off per year. They usually use Christmas and choose that one to go back home to their own family. So Thanksgiving is one of those ones that, you know, if they're depending on their situations, of course, but they usually will choose that Thanksgiving is where they stay local. And so they don't have family. They don't have a lot of friends around them. And so they're kind of uh, somewhat kind of like those uh, foreign exchange students that, you know, don't have family. And so you want to bring them into your family uh, bring them around the table, enjoy the holidays with them, even though technically speaking, they're complete strangers. Obviously, they're fellow brethren and sisters of the overall you know, veteran community, the military community. So you have a closeness there. But they, in all aspects, are complete strangers. You know, they're kids that um, are going through the training, as you said. So it's really admirable that you are you and your family uh, you know, give of yourself in that way as well. So thank you for that. Uh, okay. Last two questions. What was the last book that you read, or it could be even the current book. Now I realize I need to change the subject around or the question a little bit because, uh, you physically are not able to read the words, but I would imagine you can do certainly audiobooks, like you talked about. Uh, so is there a recent book that you've, mentally consumed uh that was an audiobook either more recently or that you're currently indulging in right now well yeah i uh, definitely consume a lot of audiobooks and if i need to i can do the ebook and have my my phone or my computer read it but it's kind of like having siri read the book to you <laughs> uh so i definitely prefer the human voice with the audi- audiobooks but uh, right now, I'm, um, I, I recently just completed two great parables, uh, The Go-Giver and Tribe of Millionaires. Really like those, but I'm currently reading um, Joe Fairless, uh, his uh, best ever apartment syndication book. Hmm. Okay, awesome. All right. And then last question is, what is your go to quote? This is your I oftentimes will reference it as your uh, cerebellum Red Bull, the one that uh, you're down and out for the day. You're feeling a little miserable, been cooking the previous day before, maybe even today. It's like, oh, man, why do I do this to myself? I'm cooking so much. What's that quote that you pull from? from your experiences uh, that you tap into in order to motivate yourself back into, nope, snapping out of it, I'm back in this. What's that go-to quote for you? Uh, I always go back to this passage I read in Relentless, From Good to Great to Unstoppable. And it was, uh, again, I botched quotes, but uh, he (laughs) said, 
Are you an optimist? Are you a pessimist? Is your glass half full, half empty? Doesn't matter. Drain the glass, fill it again. I like that a lot. That is a very good one. Uh, it's not just the glass half full. It's not the glass half empty, but drain it and refill it again. That is, that's a very good quote. I've never heard it said that way. So I, I really like that. All right. Well, uh, Aaron, you have been a tremendous guest. Thank you so much for being with us today. I uh, can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, hold tight because we're going to talk a little bit after after this. But to learn more about the work that Aaron Hale at EOD Confections is doing, visit IgniteRadioShow.com. Look for this episode, this very episode that Aaron and I are having the pleasure of talking about right now. There you can find a recording of this. Uh, as well as any information you may need to get in touch with him. I hope the information that Aaron shared today helps light the fuse inside of you, ends up taking your business to the next level. I'd like to thank our guests today, our production team, our engineering team, most of all, all of you listening. Until next week, I'm your host, Josh Wilhelm. Have a great and successful rest of the week, everybody. And also, because it is the day before Thanksgiving, have a tremendously amazing and awesome Thanksgiving with all your friends and family and be thankful for what you do have.